The grandeur of this hour is certainly something that's notable and something that is a great privilege and a blessing to each of us. As was voiced in our prayer as well as in the announcements, it is truly a precious honor and privilege we've, we've each been given as the close of this day comes about us to honor God yet again by our worship to Him. How often does the Scripture remind us that how great in fact is He? In Psalm 89 verse number 7, we learn on that occasion how great God is and always worthy of our worship directed toward Him. This evening, as we've come together on this occasion, we'll continue our study of the Revelation. It is to that book I would invite your attention this evening in particular as we look at a lesson entitled The First Six Seals, and it's the fifth one in our series of studies taking us through the Revelation this, uh, this summer season. Each summer, as the Bible Bowl book is announced, I always try. It seems like it's a good idea for each of us to study along with our youngsters as they are preparing for the Revelation. And so, too, we'll do the same. And as we reach this fifth lesson, here are some, in brief order, the things that we have learned to this point. In the first lesson, we noticed in chapter 1 the identity of the one revealing the Revelation. It was Jesus the Christ who walked among the golden lampstands, who held the seven stars in His right hand. And it was He who powerfully and thunderously gave this revelation. As in fact it was provided, chapters 2 and 3, in rapid order were brief letters to the seven churches. Those churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as those individual letters were written it brought to their attention, in most instances, some shortcomings and things they needed to remedy so that they could, in fact, stand and receive the glorious blessing of eternity. We also noticed, as we noticed chapters 4 and 5, a door was opened in heaven, and John had the privilege of seeing one sitting on the throne, and in his right hand was, in fact, a scroll written on the front side and back, sealed seven times. And furthermore, we learn... There were four living creatures as well as 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. All of that reminding us of the grandeur, majesty, and glory of that scene in heaven. And also about the powerful character of what was about to be revealed. In chapter 5 particularly, one was found worthy not only to look upon the seven sealed book, but also to take it and to begin to loose the seals. That one, of course, was the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who was recognized in the next verse as the Lamb of God, John 1.29, who took away, of course, the sins of the world. As the Lord Jesus Christ then one by one looses those seals, that brings us to our lesson tonight. We shall find six of them loosed in our study this evening, and we will await the loosing of the seventh until, in fact, our next lesson. But as you can see in these interesting matters, we are getting to the book of Revelation's point where expositors differ greatly on the nature of what is firmly and clearly being discussed. We shall notice basically some principles to be drawn from it. And as we do that, we, I think, will be greatly encouraged, even ourselves today, in light of the Revelation chapter 6 and 7. In turning to chapter 6, we notice almost immediately the following. In fact, some introductory comments I thought would be worthwhile. We first of all, in the loosing of the first four seals, we will observe four horses of different colors. And as these horses come before us, they each have riders that 
tell us or convey to us some rather remarkable lessons of hardship and difficulty in that day and of the necessary courage and fortitude even in our day. But I thought it would be interesting to observe, first of all, this scene does take us back to a chapter in Zechariah. For example, in Zechariah, the sixth chapter, we also encounter four chariots and four horses that are pulling the four chariots. And those horses on that occasion were indicative of the fullness and completeness of the message of God and that what was taking place in Zechariah's day was in fact according to his purpose and his plan. It would seem in part that when we come to Revelation 4 and see, or rather Revelation 6, and see the four horses here, it also reminds us that what is taking place in regard to these four horses was a part of that which was the plan of God in the sense that it had His jurisdiction. What was taking place, He knew all about it, and He also had the proper remedy for it, as we shall see in the fifth seal coming up a bit later in tonight's lesson. God is in control of the affairs of this earth, though at times it may not seem so. And though at times various and sundry evil powers seem to rule and reign supreme, and one can't help but ask, God, where are you? And why do you not fix this situation? May we never forget, just as Daniel learned and affirmed in Daniel 4.25, God rules in the kingdoms of men. He did so in the first century, and He still does so today. That lesson was so vitally needed by those beleaguered, persecuted, downtrodden saints of the first century who in the midst of such dire circumstances they needed reminding there is a power stronger than Rome and there is a power stronger than those who oppress you. And if you will be faithful unto me, withstanding all the hardship that is thrown your way, you too can come over and live with me in heaven. These four horsemen bring us then to the opening of the first seal. The first one, in fact, Revelation 6 verses 1 and 2, we notice in the loosing of the first seal that immediately John finds himself in the following predicament and situation. And when the Lamb opened one of the seals, I heard as it were the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. It would seem that that first living creature that was like a lion, here said John, come. An invitation was extended to John and he was allowed in fact to come and to observe or appreciate that which was now revealed. What was it that John saw? Verse 2, I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And this was what John saw when the first seal was loosed. He saw a white horse. And one riding upon the white horse, in fact, was given, we notice in verse 2, a bow. And furthermore, crown was given to him, and he went forth, specifically it says, with an attitude and disposition of conquering, and for the purpose of conquering. We immediately appreciate, do we not, that this was indicative of and representative of an overwhelming, powerful force, this nation, if you please, or whatever it was that was under discussion, was going to, in fact, go forth and conquer. They were going to overwhelm those that would oppose them. And they, as they rode the white horse, more than once in this book, the white horse will be symbolic of victory. 
one who triumphs over all the enemies, as in Revelation 19, verses 10 and following. In every instance, we see even here that this nation, this particular people, this grouping, they are going to have great success militarily and otherwise as they conquer. What people was this? Who was being described? It would seem in light of the next seals to come, it may very well likely have been the empire of Rome and the ascending greatness that they enjoyed. It would be some time from this day before some nation would be strong enough ultimately to threaten them. Rome, in fact, ruled the world for many, many years to come from the time of this writing. But you'll notice the white horse was only the first one. What came next? We notice when the second seal was loosed, beginning in verses 3 and continuing to, to verse 4, it says, And he opened the second seal, and I heard the second beast. Now it was that living creature that in fact was like a calf. And one more time, an invitation extended, Come! And in verse 4, what did John see? There went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and they that should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Whereas the first horse, the white one, its rider was given military power and victory. This one we notice was red, indicative of killing and bloodshed. As these went forth to conquer in their aftermath would be great loss of life by those who endured that war and those that endured that battle. This red horse reminds us of the great aftermath and also the terrible tragedies that often go along with war. So it was in this instance that the same was true. Those that had military victory would leave behind many deaths and leave behind much difficulty and leave behind a great loss of blood. It's on to the third horse, the third seal. As we do that, some pictures that I was able to find... This one was a picture we had seen before. It reminds us of, in fact, the one revealing all of this to us. There was the Lamb. There was the Alpha and the Omega. There was the Lion of the tribe of Judah, all reminding us, of course, of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. And as John saw these visions, here is one artist's picture of the four horsemen. Reading left to right, you can see the white horse and then the red one. As you can also see in it, the next two will have the following colors as follows. The third one is black, and the fourth one is pale. As we look at each one of these horsemen, you likely you can perhaps indicate something is in their hands. The first one has that bow in the matter of victory. The second, as we've just studied, we notice the red horse and his rider. The third one, the black one, has a scale in his hand, a balance, if you will. And, of course, the rider on the last one, as we shall see in a moment, is none other than death. But as we come to all of them, let's give some remarks to the loosing of that third seal. The black horse is the one that we mentioned, taking us to verse, verse number 5, as well as verse 6. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast, the one that had the face, you may remember as a man, come and see, and behold... And lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. <clears throat> this rider had a scale in his hand in which something could be weighed. Its mass could be determined. What might this symbolize? What was the meaning behind the third horse? 
and of course the writer that had the pair of balances. The clue is in the next verse, verse 6. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. <clears throat> we notice as the third rider went forth, the black horse. We now can appreciate that there was something indicative about the balance. Again, it simply says, a measure of wheat for a penny. That word penny is the denarius. It is that particular coin that was representative of a day's wage in that ancient antique era. We notice it then says, a measure of wheat for a penny. This, that was an exorbitant price. That was an extremely great price. A full day's wage for one mess of wheat. And notice barley was even more so. It says, three measures of barley for a penny. We notice in each instance that this was indicative of that which would follow the white as well as the red horse. This was a time of great want and scarcity and famine. Food was hard to come by. It was the case in regard to this. We noticed the balance and the measure was determined in it, and it was going to cost a whole denarius for such a small amount of wheat and even a slightly larger amount of barley. We notice it's often the case that when one power by way of nation overwhelms another, it does cause great want. And you might notice also that the various classes of society typically would eat wheat and barley differently. So we're also being told here that both the rich and the poor were going to suffer. It wasn't that only the poor were not going to have enough food. The rich were going to suffer as well. We notice that the nation then under description... The one that was going to have the victory was going to leave behind another in their attack who didn't have enough food. They were going to be found wanting and lacking. And as such, the third horse, the black horse with its rider, was indicative of this other hardship that was going to come on people. As we come to the fourth seal, the loosing of it, you'll notice at the bottom, verses 7 and 8 of this chapter, when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed after him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. The fourth horse and its rider was Death. And you notice that the one following after Death was Hades. Now that doesn't at all sound shocking for when you and I die, we know the Spirit goes to Hades. But did you notice the fourth part of the earth suffered beneath this? John was thus informed that all of the earth wasn't going to immediately suffer this kind of fate, but a significant fraction was, and a significant amount was. And you noticed he said at the end of verse 8, Power was given over that fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and with the beasts of the earth. That, in a sense, takes us back to a bit of a summary of those first three horses as well. For remember, we see in, there was bloodshed with the second one, victory with the first one, and with the third one there was great hunger, and yet all of those are mentioned again here. One by one, you could probably appreciate with me the destruction that thus was going to come was going to be a rather fantastic one. A very great one, but it was not going to be complete because only a fourth was in fact suffering beneath this at that time. 
Maybe some summary statements would be in order in light of the first four seals. First of all, is that one by one these have been loosed rather quickly. We notice there are some terrible ills that a number of the human family was going to suffer. Things like hunger, things like death, things like difficulties in various ways with bloodshed and warfare. Perhaps this is a powerful lesson that quite often the human family chooses to pursue that which hurts and harms others. When nations go to war and they leave behind in their aftermath such dire consequences as loss of life, famine, and hurt, perhaps this is God's way of reminding us that all those hardships are a part, it seems, of the human lot. As long as we are in this flesh, the difficulties because of the sins of the human, human family will lead to things like this in one way or another. Now in the first century, this was a heightened situation. Some of these Christians in these seven churches of Asia were soon to suffer tremendous persecution. Rome was going to bear down hard on them and they were going to find it hard to feed their families. They were going to find it difficult to remain loyal and faithful and true and the Roman boundaries placed upon them were going to be demanding of almost their very lives. They needed to be reminded that this kind of difficulty was soon to come their way. That church in Smyrna, remember, was told, you are going to be cast into prison, but for ten days, but you be faithful till death. Perhaps that idea is the overarching matter behind the first four seals. The reason we can say all that is because of the fifth one. Let's now, with these in mind, look at the fifth seal. When it was loosed, we find something very different in the first four. In verse number 9, it says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord? Holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood? on them that dwell on the earth. Now, with the loosing of the fifth seal, John directly sees some who had been martyred for the cause of the Christ. He specifically says, for the word of the testimony and for the word of God. They were killed because they were Christians, not because they were enemies of the state, not because they had in fact purposefully gone about and rendered evil with respect to human laws, but because they were Christians. John saw their souls beneath the altars. Notice he didn't say that they were in the person. He saw these souls. They had already been slain. They had already been killed. And John sees them. And as he witnesses and sees these souls, verses 9 and 10, they have a question. And they petition, not John now, but the Lord Himself, O Lord, holy and true, how long dost thou not judge and avenge our blood? They had been put to death for their faith. And they simply asked, how long will it be before you vindicate our cause? That you vindicate the reason we died. We were faithful and true to you. How long before you crush these powers that took our life? That you raise up those who are faithful and you in fact remove and eradicate these who have been so opposed to your cause? That's a good question, isn't it? Can you imagine how helpful... To these beleaguered saints, a question like that would be, 
Many of them, no doubt, were asking, I can't find the food to feed my wife and children. How long will it be before you remove this Roman emperor and bring one in place who will be more open to the cause of Christ and who will be more open to supporting the cause that's good? It is in light of that fifth seal. We begin to see it would appear this one is not chronological in the sense that any Christian, seemingly from any age, who is oppressed by civil governments or otherwise, might find great encouragement with the matter of the fifth seal. How long, O Lord? Maybe you and I can well appreciate the answer that's given beginning in verse 11. What did God say? What did the Christ say in answer to this question? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. If we may be so brief as to paraphrase, the Master said, there's going to be some more who are going to suffer the same fate you did. Wait a little while longer. The time is not right yet. That would have certainly have had one element of answer that was a bit sad, that others were also going to suffer the same fate. But in it, there was, of course, the end result of victory. The time has come when what you've asked for will take place. It's just that it's not the right time yet. Doesn't that remind us our God does rule in the kingdoms of men? And these saints in such hardship were reminded still to be of an, of an encouraging spirit. It is with that in mind we come near the bottom of that slide. We didn't lay much emphasis on the fact that it was the altar beneath which John saw these souls. But doesn't that remind us even from the Old Testament era of the significance of the altar both in the tabernacle and in the temple? Telling us it was on that altar that proper expiation was made for the sins of that day and time. And here it was beneath that altar that John of course saw these Perhaps another picture would be in order. Here is an artist's picture, and you see this rather large-scaled altar, but beneath it are these souls dressed in white, those robes of victory you did overcome, and I am aware of what you sacrificed, but rest assured the ultimate victory will have been worth it. Doesn't that help us know that no matter what happens in this country, Times could get awfully difficult and hard, and even if it does, we can always go back to the Revelation and find words of encouragement that are helpful to us just as it was to them. It really is no surprise that the apocalyptic sections of the Bible, such as the Revelation, are always the passages to which people will turn when times get hard. Because in it you can find such symbols of victory and promise of reward to those that are the faithful. It is with the loosing of that fifth seal that we come to the sixth one. Also in this same chapter, we find in the last six verses of this chapter, verses 12 to 17, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken with a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. 
and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And with that, the curtain closes on Revelation chapter 6. But a few comments about that sixth seal. You notice after the fifth one, in which that question was asked, How long, O Lord? The answer was given a little while longer. That brings us to the sixth seal. With it, here are some comments. This one, it seems, has a rather different tone than the others. We first noticed that an earthquake was observed. And then we noticed the sun became black and the moon became as blood. The stars fell and every island and mountain were moved out of their places. Many have been the individuals such as John Hagee and otherwise who look upon that with literalness and proclaim this is a premonition, a description of what shall befall the earth when the end of time is about to come. It does not describe an event like that per se. This is a description in a figurative way of that set of affairs that would come about when that judgment mentioned earlier in verse 5, or rather when the fifth seal was open. He said there's going to time, come a time when that vindication will happen. And when it does, figuratively, things like this will happen. Often in the Bible we find language like that, and I've listed a number of their places. In Ezekiel 38, Joel 2, Isaiah chapters 13 and 34, as well as Matthew 24, Language very similar to this is used to describe a great overturning of powers. When great empires are brought to naught, when God judges in light of the things concerning what they have done and proceeds to crush their power and raise up another. He did that with Babylon. He did that with Assyria. He did that with Rome. We can, however, notice that due to their wickedness, they brought all of this on themselves. And doesn't it foreshadow, of course, in a way, the events that each one who is evil shall have to face? Can you and I not imagine when that great day of the end of time does come and individuals then realize all of eternity is before them and they understand that there is no going back. There is no opportunity then to change anything. And eternity in hell is, of course, what lies in their future. Would they not also be of a principal desire to get me out of this situation? Surely this can then, in as much as it describes that initial scene of God's judgment on places like Rome and others, it also is a matter of foretaste, helping all of us see the terror of what the Lamb can do to those that oppose Him. No wonder we should live faithfully, because when the end of our days are come, and we then do stand before God in judgment. It'll be too late to call for rocks and mountains to fall on us. The earth will have been destroyed, 2 Peter 3.10. But in a principled way, would we not wish to be out of that situation? For we know what has been done, and we know what lies ahead. Just as surely then as this good question closes the chapter, the great day of His wrath has come. Who shall be able to stand? No wonder the Bible answers questions like that. Who shall be able to stand? 
Psalm chapter 1 and chapter 15 and chapter 24 all provide us with answer. The ones who shall stand are the ones who have clean hands in the sight of God, who have a pure heart in the sight of God, and who have been obedient in the sight of God. That's what those psalm passages tell us, and that's what they help us appreciate. In light of the first six seals, what about this question to us? How do you and I stand today? We may be 20 centuries removed from the time of the writing of the Revelation, but we do know that God's wrath will be poured out, and we do know that all shall stand before Him in judgment. Are we ready for that time? Are we ready for that moment? Are we ready for that eventuality? Clearly there were going to be many not ready, according to verse 15 here, when God would judge Rome and others. It is with that in mind we close that chapter and open the next one. We have seen this wrath of God poured out in that sixth seal. One can only wonder, what does the seventh seal hold? How much worse could it be than this? May we simply say, we won't get to that chapter tonight. But as a foretaste of it, it is far more grand than this one. For now, we have an interlude, chapter 7. <clears throat> it's almost as if this one is an oasis on the desert of sorrow and sin. Quite often, God is so good at that. When things look so bleak, when things look so dark, when things look virtually hopeless, God will bring an oasis on the desert of sin and sorrow and lift our spirits. So often Jeremiah did that in his book, didn't he? Chapters 7, 11, and 14 are this beautiful oasis in the midst of the sinfulness of Israel. May we say chapter 7 of Revelation seems to be a patterned similarity. As we look at this one, we start in the following way. Here is a picture that states again in one artist's idea of the terror of that sixth seal. The issues surrounding the blackness of the sun... The other features surrounding the hardship, the earthquake that came upon earth in a figurative way. But with it again, may we never forget that before we get to the seventh seal, there's something that needs to be done first. This something, of course, is the sealing of the servants of God. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. We do notice those four angels according to verse 2, did have at their disposal the opportunity to hurt the earth, the sea, the wind, the trees, and so on. But this other angel stood up and said, Hurt not the earth until we've sealed the servants of God. Here is a rather beautiful scene. We see, in fact, an opening statement of provision. Those who are the servants of God are provided protection... They are provided a means whereby they will not suffer the hardship in its fullness that others will have to suffer. Remember, they were sealed, protected, secured, if you will. And only after that was the hurtfulness brought upon the earth. As we give some thought to that, consider with me these issues that might be mentioned. 
with regard to these opening statements of that chapter. First of all, the sealing of the servants of God that identifies their authenticity. They were real. They were determined and dedicated, devoted unto God. And as such, they themselves had remained faithful to this point, despite the hardship of these opening seals and the difficulties with them. And we notice in Ezekiel 9 verses 1 through 11, we have an Old Testament pattern that reads very similarly to this one. And may we suggest maybe it sheds the light on our full understanding of this one. For a moment, let's revisit Ezekiel chapter 9. In the opening four, in the opening 11 verses of Ezekiel 9, we remember that Ezekiel the prophet, in essence, was given information about putting a seal on the foreheads of some in, Jew, in Jerusalem who, in fact, were faithful. Again, the reading is a very plain one. Amongst all of the wicked and all of those who had been unrighteous, God tells Ezekiel to appreciate a seal on those who are faithful as a protecting mark of identification of who they were. They were associated with heaven, and they thus had His name, in essence, in them and on them. That, in a very interesting way, is a pattern for what we see here. Again, seal the servants of God in their foreheads, hurt not the earth until that happens, Revelation 7. Just as surely then as Ezekiel saw the sealing, identifying and protecting his servants when in the days of Babylon's destruction, so too it was here noted in the days when Rome was undergoing its great power and bringing such hardship on the people of God. That kind of thing tells us that God was aware of those who were His children. Sometimes it might be tempting to think, does God really care when I'm struggling so, when others around are hurting me, I can't take care of my family? Does God know? Does He love me? Does He care? He sure does. He hasn't promised us that this life will be a bed of roses, but He's always aware of us. And if we are His faithful child, we can rest assured that we shall emerge triumphant and victorious and heaven will surely be worth it all. This seventh chapter of the Revelation, in fact, is about to point us directly in that direction. As we move further, we now have in fact seen that the faithful are to be sealed. And that brings us to a description then of those who are sealed, beginning in verse number 4. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. So John, who were they and how many were there? And there were sealed in hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Naphtali were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed twelve thousand. And of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed twelve thousand. We've just seen a listing of a total of 144,000, but twelve thousand from each of these tribes as they were listed. Now some exceedingly good questions might be asked. There are quite a few in our world who again take that listing literal. And they thus claim that a literal number of 144,000 will be blessed to enter heaven. 
no more and no less. Furthermore, they are quick to claim that this serves as a pattern, these 12 tribes, for who those 12,000 will be. We might quickly draw some conclusions. First, they must be in error. This number is not to be taken literally. Consider these considerations with me if you would. First of all, if this is to be taken literally, then it obviously means that only those of these tribes will be saved. That means no one from any tribe not listed here, if this is literal, can possibly be saved. That eliminates Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For all of them lived on earth before there was the identification of any of these tribes. But yet in Matthew 8, the Lord said Abraham was saved. That proves this cannot be taken literally. But not only that line of consideration, but consider another. We notice several tribes were not listed. Dan wasn't listed. Ephraim wasn't listed. And we also notice that Joseph was listed, but in the Old Testament there was never a tribe called the tribe of Joseph. That should immediately be a strong indication that this is not to be taken literally. In fact, give some thought to some of the people who actually descended from the tribes of Ephraim and Dan. And think about it in the Old Testament. That would rule out people like Samson. They would rule out one or more of the various kings later when the actual kingdom was established because they were descended through Dan. All that again leads us to perhaps this point. This would mean, if literal, that not a Gentile that ever lived will make it to heaven. Now, I know all of us sitting here, because we're Gentiles, rest assured that that premise is untrue. But yet, if this is to be taken literally, there is not hope of a single Gentile ever being saved. But yet, we know in the New Testament that Paul preached in a whole host of places to Gentiles and promised them that their names were in the book of life. As, for instance, in the book of Philippians. Light of all of that, perhaps one final comment. You'll notice that this does say, if we're going to press it to be literal, it mentions men. That means there's not hope of a woman ever being saved if we have to take this literally. But yet, what does that say about men, women such as Dorcas and Hannah and Mary and others who the Scriptures give the strongest indication that they, in fact, were faithful? You'll notice also that this describes men of a certain character. Notice, drawn from Revelation 14, this same 144,000 is listed there and it is said that they were virgins. Again, if we're going to take part of it literally, surely we must take all of it that way. And this would mean not a married man ever lived can be saved. Piling all this evidence together, we can certainly conclude as we think about men like Peter. He was married and men like Moses, he was married, and Abraham was married. And yet again, the Lord had made the statement in Matthew 8 that men like those were faithful. We've concluded that this 144,000 was the Lord's figurative way of describing the category of the saved, not to be taken literally in terms of a number. But what certainly can one say about that? Perhaps one can draw this conclusion. The number 144,000 is clearly 12 times 12 times 1,000. 
the number 12, indicative of the purity and fullness of those that lived under the Old Testament era and did so faithfully. The number 12, indicative of those who lived beneath the authority of the 12 apostles in the New Testament and did so faithfully, be it either era that they themselves, as long as faithful, multiply it by a thousand, which is 10 times 10 times 10, the full completeness of that number in every aspect. Perhaps it would be wise to simply say it this way. This number of 144,000 tells us that all who ever lived, who in fact were in position of faithfulness and should have been saved, will be saved. Heaven has enough room for all who have so conducted themselves to be worthy of that place. All nations, kindreds, people, and tongues are now what John sees next. As we come to the close of this chapter, verses 9 through 17, we'll read that and then make some final remarks, and our lesson tonight will draw to its close. After this I beheld and lo a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the Lamb, I'm sorry, before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and under the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto them, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He that sitteth upon the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. That almost brings a tear of excitement to our eye, doesn't it? For we have just seen in the loosing of those first four seals the difficulties that can be the human lot. Warfare, bloodshed, death, and all that goes with it. And we notice in the fifth seal, persecution because one is a Christian. Souls beneath the altar crying, How long, O Lord? Then with the sixth seal, God's judgment upon those who in fact inflict such things against His will. And finally now we see God sealing His servants. 144,000 are first listed, but then John says in verse number 9, An innumerable number which no man could number. We see, in fact, in that the following. As those servants have their foreheads sealed, it brings us to a realization that this was a large number, not just 144,000. That was a specific reference to those from Old and New Testament times, but all of those who are obedient and worthy are those who, in fact, are observed here. You can also see this is a picture, 12,000 in groups of 12, making the 144,000. And among them you can see that inasmuch as they are sealed and find themselves in this location, it's time to identify who these are. Who is the portrait here under description? 
Thankfully, John asked the question. Did you notice that it was John who asked in verses 13 and 14, Who are these? Who is this large number, the 144,000 and the innumerable number? Who are they? We noticed the answer. John said, You know who they are. And the response was given in verse 14. These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Do you want to know who they are? Who these are blessed to stand before the throne of God whose tears are wiped from their eyes, who no longer hunger and thirst because all the problems of this earth are gone? These are the saved. Salvation is now theirs. And as we see this described, washed in the blood of the Lamb is the way that they are characterized. That happens in baptism. When one's sins are washed away in the blood of the Lamb, Romans 6, verses 3 through 5, as well as Titus chapter 2, we appreciate the thoroughness and fullness that these are the obedient ones, the ones who have been cleansed from sin. A white robe's given to them, and now they are privileged to stand before God forevermore. Day and night, forevermore, how blessed they are. It is the case as we look at all of them. The difficulties of this life are long since past them. They have emerged victorious. They have emerged triumphant over all that this earth sent their way. And with that, it draws us and brings us to the close of our lesson this evening. And with it, are we not in a position to draw our conclusion like this? Six seals have been loosed. Rather vivid has been the imagery. Rather dramatic has been the scenes. And one by one, we've seen the four horses and that which they represented. We've also seen the hardship of those martyrs beneath the altar in the fifth seal. And now, we've seen the sixth seal and the sealing of those servants of God afterward. It seems like a good question is this. Are you sealed? Are you sealed with, as a servant of God? Do you wear His name on your forehead? in a figurative way. If you do, then the great reward and promise described here awaits you, and it awaits me. But if you and I are not sealed, if we're unfaithful, if we have not arrayed ourselves with a glorious wonder of obedience to the Master, then notice, who shall be able to stand? It won't be you or I if we're disobedient. We shall be blown away in the debris of that final day because the crushing blow of the everlasting God will come upon us. Tonight, are you sealed? Are you sure of that? If you're not, make certain tonight. Wouldn't it be lovely to pillow your head with the comfort of the evening knowing that your sins are washed away and you are white and clean as snow? If we can assist you tonight in your response to the gospel, we would ask you to analyze yourself clearly and think soberly and cling to that which is good. If there's one who's wandered away from your first love, come back to that first love tonight. If you've never been obedient initially, why not tonight? A song of encouragement's been selected, and if we could be of help to you even now, why not let us do that while together we stand and while we sing?